Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that is real, real simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of super important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. And so a cheap paperback Bible is a step towards that. If you'll take it home, start reading it, I'll call it a win and I'll replace the Bible. All right, Romans chapter 5. Hey guys, welcome back to the Romans series. Good. <laughs> Good? I don't know. Does that mean you like the Romans series or you didn't like the other stuff? I don't, don't ask. No, no. All right, so... So we took a couple months off for the summer, shut things down uh, to do some other, I thought, fun stuff. Maybe John disagrees. I don't know. All right, but uh, we, we did some fun stuff, uh, but now it's time to get back in the swing of things. Romans chapter 5. All right, so whether you're new here or maybe you just, you know, you're older and you remember it doesn't work like it used to, uh, we began a series back around Easter time, the week after Easter in April, walking verse by verse through the book of Romans. Uh, and those, uh, we're calling this series Just and Justifier. Those two J words on the, on the screen there, they're, they're not just there to look pretty. Those are actually titles that God uses for himself in Romans chapter 3. He calls himself Just and Justifier. He is both the one who is infinitely just, always does what is right, always does what is good, always does what is owed and appropriate, and he's also the one who is capable and willing to justify. Now, there's a problem with that logic, though. Those two characteristics, they don't normally exist in the same person, but God is special that way. But we'll get to how in a second. For now, though, allow me, please, to remind you of some stuff that would be helpful to remember as we pick our series back up. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome, right? That's how we get the name. I tell you all the time in here, Christians are super smart when it comes to naming things. Letter to the Roman people, let's call it Romans, all right? So, Romans is the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome. It's, it's a city that is massively, massively influential on the world stage during this time period. Maybe even the most influential city ever, right? Right? Everybody's got these vaulted opinions of Rome. Paul is no different. But by the point of this letter's writing, Paul hadn't been yet. He had never been to Rome. He was a well-traveled guy. He had already been on a few missionary journeys, but he had never made it as far as the city of eternal light. Right? The, the, he had never made it as far as Rome. He would later get there just as a prisoner under house arrest. He spent a couple of years there just kind of working out, waiting for his case to be tried by the Caesar waiting to appeal his case. But by this point in the story, that hasn't happened yet. Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. He's got no relationship with the church here. Uh, we don't know who planted the church in Rome. Uh, our best guess is that somebody heard the gospel while they were in one of the other places that the gospel was moving forward, whether that's Jerusalem or Antioch or Ephesus. Our best guess is that somebody heard the gospel in one of those little hubs of ministry work and then brought it back home to Rome and started the church. They got all their friends together and said, hey, let's go worship this Jesus guy together. All right? And so... Paul has no fingerprints on this as of this moment. Um, but Paul sees some things, and he likes what he sees. And Paul believes, he, he feels that God is calling him to take the gospel all the way past Rome to Spain. Spain is on the other side of Rome from where Paul's at. He, Paul wants the gospel to go to all the places. He especially wants the gospel to go to all the places it hasn't been to yet, and so Paul wants to take the gospel long past Rome to Spain. And he sees the church in Rome 
as this incredibly, incredibly helpful thing to help him get there. Essentially, Romans is a missionary support letter. Now, I've, I've, I've written missionary support letters in the past. Maybe you have too. Maybe you've received one. A letter to friends and family that, that ask for financial help in order to uh, be a part of some kind of mission project or trip or things like that. I've written dozens of those. Right? Maybe you have written one. Maybe you've received one. That's really what Romans is. But, but Paul's missionary support letter, it's, it's kind of different. <laughs> like, like, I think I'm an okay writer. Like people will correct my grammar, people will correct my punctuation because I don't know how to use it correctly. All right, but like I think I think I got some flow. I think I can string an argument together. But, but Paul's different. Paul's different. Um, a lot of pastors and theologians point to Romans as Paul's magnum opus. Why? Well, because he didn't just ask for money. He's not like, hey, we're on the same team. How about you help a brother out? No, no, no. He creates, crafts, if you will, a masterpiece, a logical argument from beginning to end for why they ought to help him get the gospel to Spain. It is a masterpiece of first century Near Eastern didactic thought. Absolute masterpiece. It's not simply we're on the same team. Paul gives a detailed, logical, step-by-step explanation for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up other people to take the gospel to all those other places on the globe. And oh yeah, you should really get in on what God's doing. That is what Romans is. And over the course of this series, we've been likening this massive, logical argument to that of a skyscraper. Right? Skyscrapers... They're massive feats of engineering, right? Massive feats of engineering. The first modern skyscraper was called the Home Insurance Building. It was built in Chicago in 1884. Dwarfed everything else around it by standing a whopping 10 stories tall. Massive building. And, but we've just kept inventing new ways to build taller and taller, haven't we? Man, bricks are awesome, but... They ain't got nothing on a steel girder and some concrete, right? And so many of you probably know that the the tallest building today is called the Burj Khalifa. It's in Dubai, and it's 168 floors tall. About 2,000 feet. So how in the world is Paul's letter to the Romans like a skyscraper? Well, it's because skyscrapers are a superstructure made up of many parts, right? And you build them in a systematized way. Uh, It's made up of pieces and you have to work systematically on each level, making sure each level is correct before you can go to the next level up. That's that's how a skyscraper works. If you don't do that, if you don't pay attention to what's going on down at the bottom, it doesn't matter how pretty you've designed your antenna, it's not going to hang out up there very long. Right? You've got to do the legwork early. There's a foundation, there's a ground floor, there's a bunch of middle pieces, and then finally, the pretty little antenna. You might not have thought about this, but will you spend a whole lot more time figuring out exactly how you're going to do the bottom stuff than you do making it look pretty at the top? Even though everybody's ooing and aahing at the antenna, all the engineers in the room, they know where the most beautiful work is going on, right? And so we began a few months ago to unfold this logical skyscraper for everyone to see. Paul anchors this thing to the bedrock character of Jesus. Because 
He is the only one who is worthy of praise. He is the only one who has the strength and the resolve to carry the weight of creation and the gospel. Nothing and no one else could ever carry the load that Jesus carries. And so Paul anchors this thing to the character, eternal good character of Jesus. But after talking about the Creator for a little while, it's time to start talking about the creation. And so Paul lays his foundation. Paul spends a ton of time laying the foundation, actually, that all people, regardless of background, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of family lineage, regardless of religious tribe, that all people are without excuse, right? That's his argument, that we reject the good, wise, creator king, and we supplant him, and we put ourselves, or at least attempt to put ourselves on the throne. That all people are guilty. And Paul proves this thesis first by talking about creation. And then he talks about uh, the, the sinful bent in our own hearts. And then he finally talks about God's law and all the signs, every single one of them, point to our sinfulness standing before an infinitely holy God. That's a problem. That's a massive problem. And because of that sin, because of that core level rebellion in our hearts, because we as the creation have the audacity to look our creator in the eye and say, nah, I'm good. I can do it myself. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't even like you. Because we have the audacity as creation to tell that to our creators and place ourselves above him in authority. Paul tells us that the God who is perfectly just must and the answer, the, the key word here is must, must do something about that problem. Must. And if he doesn't, then he's not actually just. Not even a little bit. In fact, he's a liar. If, if God is either incapable or unwilling to act as judge over unjust things, then he's neither God nor worth your time. He's a charlatan. He is a wannabe God masquerading as a, as a righteous judge. And it also, it also robs us of any hope we actually have that unjust things will ever be made right again. If God is not perfectly just, then the whole of creation becomes futile. Have you ever thought through that? The whole of creation becomes futile. Human justice can never be perfect, ever. There's always something missing. We need something outside of ourselves or it will always be flawed. And so the wrath of God is not some embarrassing fringe doctrine invented by you know, uh, fire and brimstone preachers looking to put their thumb on people. It is our greatest hope that evil things will one day get what they deserve. Our greatest hope. It, it's also the most only appropriate response of a holy God to the willful and defiant rebellion of a created thing insulting its creator. We need the wrath of God. Because a God who is powerless to right those wrongs is not God at all. Not even a little. He should not be worshipped. He should not be followed. He is a giant waste of your time. But the Bible is clear. God is perfectly just. And He has promised ultimate Justice, And while that's good news for those of us who have been on the receiving end of injustice, it is simultaneously terrible news for those of us who have been on the giving end of injustice, right? God will uphold His glory and each one will get exactly what they deserve. And 
Well, I know my heart well enough to understand that that is a problem for me. How about yourself? But there's another level to our gospel skyscraper, right? Skyscrapers aren't skyscrapers if they just stay with the foundation. That's just a building. Pretty ugly building. But there's a next level on our skyscraper. And so he who is perfectly just is also the great justifier. And so Paul in Romans 1.5 tells us that the righteous shall live by what? You remember? Faith, right? The dilemma we introduced a second ago about being just and justifier at the same time, that's still a dilemma. So how can God be just and justifier? To justify means to declare something right, right? It's a declaration of innocence. If, if someone was obviously guilty, declaring them to be innocent means that justice has broken down somewhere. I mean, think through that picture for a second. If God were to declare guilty sinners justified just like that at a drop of a hat, well, that would be a terribly unjust thing to do. He wouldn't be just at all. He would be acting against his justice. By giving someone or something something other than what they deserve. So how in the world can God be both at the same time? What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus is always the answer, right? Jesus is the answer. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He, he lived a sinless life of active obedience to the Father and He died as a substitute in passive obedience to pay the debt of sin that we owe. In other words... God did carry out his righteous wrath. He did. Justice was perfectly met. It's not on you. It was carried out on his son. And because justice has been perfectly met, justification then, this declaration of righteousness can be pronounced on those who trust Jesus and his work on our behalf in faith. That's the gospel. Sinners are made righteous. Not by their righteousness, but by a foreign righteousness given to them. And that reality is what leads us to our text for the morning. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, that's a fun word, right? Therefore, since we have been what? justified by faith. So based on everything we just talked about, this, this reality that you stand before God as guilty, but Jesus comes in with his righteousness, his goodness, his perfection, his sacrifice on your behalf that enables you to be declared innocent because of this justification by faith. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, you may not know this, but that's one of the most mind-blowing verses in the Bible. Absolutely crazy. What do you mean we have peace? How, how is that a big deal? Because Paul spent the last four chapters making it explicitly clear that God and sinners are not on the same team. In fact, we're at war with each other. The world we live in, it tends to think that God's default is peace. Well, I mean, He has to be, right? Like, like He's good, and He's patient, and He's gentle. I mean, He's like a loving grandfather who looks upon us with delight. That view of God's all over the place. It's just not in the Bible. It's foreign to the Bible. Without the justification purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross, without His righteousness being given or imputed to us, peace is not the way God sees us. 
Next week, we're going to get the chance to look at verse 10 here. where Paul says that our default is to be seen as an enemy of God. But here in verse 1, here in verse 1, Paul says that because we have been justified by faith, we now have peace. Where there was once separation, there's now reconciliation. Where there was once hostility, we now have a laying down of arms. And that is really good news if you are outgunned on an infinite level. You weren't going to win that fight. Justification, though, as awesome as it is, is not the end of the story. There is a fruit that is birthed out of justification. There is a fruit that is birthed out of this declaration of innocence and righteousness. Because Jesus, uh, because of Jesus, we have been justified. And because we have been justified, we now have peace with God. But well, that's not the only fruit that we have. Paul goes on to list a couple more. Look at verse 2. Through Him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I know that probably doesn't seem like it to, to many of you, but this is also one of the most mind-blowing sentences in the Bible. Okay. Great. We have access to God. Yay. Why is that a big deal? Because when Paul is writing this, Access to God is a new thing. It's a brand new thing, actually. I mean, think through, those of you who, who have a church background, think through what you remember about the Old Testament for a second. Just real quick, you got some important figures that you could probably rattle off the names of. Guys like Noah and Abraham, King David, maybe some of the prophets. Never, never the minor ones, but you can remember the major prophets, right? You can remember those those people, right? It's, there's this great long story, this narrative of God revealing Himself and speaking to individuals who then turn around and speak for God to the masses. Moses is one of the prime examples of this. God has rescued the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He has uh, walked with them in, in, through the wilderness, uh, through you know, fire of, uh, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, all this stuff. He's begun feeding them and all these kinds of things. And he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he tells them, don't touch the mountain or you'll die. <laughs> Moses goes up. Receives God's word, receives God's law, comes back down, gives it to the people. Right? We see the same kind of thing play out with the tent of meeting later on in the story. There was always a human mediator. Always. There was a man of God who spoke for God and then relayed God's message to the people. But now we have a new kind of mediator, right? Jesus. God Himself has come to us. And so now, normal people, you and me, the non-Moses types. I don't look like Charlton Heston. I'm close. I need a better dimple. All of us normal folk, we, we have access to God. There's no go-between anymore. We have an audience with God. There's no need for a holy man to hopefully put in a good word for us. 
And the only reason that this reality doesn't floor us is because we've forgotten how the rest of the world operated for the first couple of millennia of existence. Right? We've grown numb to this reality. Because we have been justified by faith in Jesus and His work on our behalf, we have unlimited access to God. Never more again will we need a priest to be a mediator for us. Follower of Jesus, you have an audience with the King. With the King. But because of the culture that we live in, I think it's actually a danger for us to swing the pendulum all the way to the other end. Like most things in life, the longer we have something, the more normal and more unimpressive they seem to us, right? Can you point to other things in your life that that happens? More flippantly we begin to handle it. And so don't let yourself slip into a cavalier attitude that forgets that we are approaching an infinitely holy God here. I think that's the bigger danger for our culture. Reverence matters. It's not a reverence, however, that's purchased by anything that we bring to the table. We don't approach God with vaulted language or a certain way of dressing or a certain style of music or any kind of rites of passage. We approach Him with the core level knowledge that our access is purchased by someone else. By the spilled blood of Jesus and His righteousness instead of ours. Now, all those external things, those can be indicators, illustrations of an internal reality, but they can never replace the internal reality. Because of Jesus, because of His perfection, because of His righteousness, because of His sacrifice on our behalf, we have access to the Father. Nothing you ever bring could ever sweeten that deal. In fact, it sullies it. You think I need your dress? I don't need your dress. I have the perfect blood of Jesus. You think I need your vaulted language when you pray? No, no. I, I, we have the perfect blood of Jesus. Keep your, keep your vocabulary. Access to God is a fruit that is birthed out of justification. But there's a third fruit to point out. Look at verse 2 again. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, so that word hope there, it means assurance, all right? Uh, just kind of plug that in. We rejoice in the assurance of the glory of God. Now, glory is a word that gets thrown around in Christian circles a lot, but it's not really a word that gets defined as often as it ought to, right? So, what is it? What is glory? Like, you probably use that word. Could you define it? That's actually a, a question. Could you define it? You probably can't define it. Now here, glory is the public manifestation of God's infinite and majestic worth. Let me repeat that for you. Some of you are taking notes. Glory is the public manifestation of God's infinite and majestic worth. It's a public revelation and realization of His holiness. God is infinitely holy, meaning that He's set apart. He is so much more special and valuable and, and good and, and than everything else. He is set apart. He's in a class by Himself. That's what holy means, to be set apart, right? Um, 
we see this reality played out in Isaiah 6. Um, holiness is uh, holiness is something that God is, and glory is His holiness going public. All right, so let me give you an illustration. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, um, Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. He has this vision of God, and he, uh, he all of a sudden in the throne room of the king, right? And he sees these angels, seraphim they're called, flying all about the throne of God, and they're shouting back and forth. What are they shouting? Holy, 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 right? So God, they're, they're pronouncing God's holiness. He's holy. He is holy. He is holy. He's special. He is set apart. He is so much other than. He is holy. And they say he's holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his what? Glory. You would think that they would say the whole earth is full of his holiness, right? Glory is the public revelation, the, the announcement and realization, the seeing and beholding and the savoring of God's holiness. And Paul here says, Paul here says that one of the fruits of our justification because we have now been declared righteous before the Father, one of the fruits of our justification is that we rejoice or we boast in the assurance of God's glory. Awesome! What in the world does that mean? It means that those of us who are followers of Jesus have the amazing privilege of actually playing a part in God's holiness being seen. We get to put His glory on display through our life, through our obedience to His Word, through our worship, through our evangelism, through our fill-in-the-blank. You, you can just keep going. We get the privilege of putting His holiness on display, of giving Him, ascribing to Him, magnifying His glory. We celebrate because we have the hope, the assurance that God's glory will be seen through us. Bank on it. But I keep using that word assurance instead of the word hope. There's a very specific reason why. And the next verse forces us to double back and flesh out our definition a little bit more. So why, why, do, I, why do I insist that this word means assurance and not hope? Well, it's because the world we live in is, is kind of mixed up. The world we live in tends to water down the definitions of absolutely massive words. We do this with all kinds of other stuff. Um, if you were to come across the word hope in anything written today, you would immediately think, oh, wish. That's its synonym, right? Wish. That, that's what a hope is. It's a wish. Hopes are things that you, you, know, re you really want to see happen, but they can't be guaranteed. You just kind of like to see it happen, right? So they're, they're forced to camp out over in fantasy land. Right? You wish upon a star, you throw a penny in a wishing well. Right? They're just these things that you want. You, you may, may have hopes and dreams, things that you're possibly working towards, but I mean, you really need a bunch of other variables to fall into place here and there. It's really kind of outside of your control, right? For the culture we live in, that is what a wish is. But that's not the picture that the Bible paints of the word hope. The picture that it normally gives us is that of an anchor that prevents you from being tossed around by the waves and the wind. Because of hope, we don't vacillate. And we aren't victims to the circumstances acting upon us. 
Why? Because we're anchored to something that's resolute. Or maybe I should say someone that's resolute. We say all the time here that faith properly defined is not blind. It's another one of those words that the the world around us tends to cheapen and water down. The Bible's definition of faith is not blind. It is a calculated trust in he who is trustworthy. He who is faithful. One of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, likes to say this. The only difference between hope and faith is that faith looks to what has already taken place and we put our trust in it. Hope is merely faith looking forward. So why does any of this matter? Because the word hope, as currently defined by our culture, doesn't have the legs to hold up to our next sentence. Read it with me. We need something bigger. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our what? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Alright, so we rejoice in our sufferings. Yeah! Anybody celebrating some sufferings this morning want to stand and give testimony? No? You're not, you're not celebrating your sufferings this morning? It gets even better, though, because the Greek word here for rejoice could actually be better translated as boast. We're not just having a party. We're boasting in our sufferings. We're proud of them. We like to show them off. Have you seen my sufferings? Aren't they awesome? See, while everybody else in the world is doing everything they can to minimize suffering or escape suffering or at least hide their suffering so the world around them doesn't know what's going on, the the Christian, the follower of Jesus, goes, have you seen my suffering? What a blessing. Does that sound otherworldly to you? It should. It should. So why would we ever say something as backwards as that well because suffering produces endurance of course those of you who are who like to exercise already understand this it's by pushing yourself past what is easy past what is comfortable that your body actually begins to grow right you have to you have to have that moment of uneasiness that moment of i don't really like this part in order to actually get to the place where your body does something valuable right otherwise you're just going for a stroll I go for strolls all the time. I had, to, I had to phone a friend for this. I'm, I'm obviously not an expert in the field. But as great as endurance is, it's not the only thing produced. We're told next that endurance produces what? Character, right? Eugene Peterson was a pastor. He's already, he's already passed away. Pastor a generation ago. He, um, he used to say that discipleship was really just a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. What he meant by that was that consistently taking the next faithful step actually changes who you are. It builds your character. It shapes your character. And that's all discipleship is. It's, it's an intentional building of Christ-like character. That's all discipleship is. And Paul says here that, that suffering-fueled endurance produces Christ-like character. But he also keeps going. Because character produces something. Character produces hope. If your definition of hope is the same as wish, you don't need character for that. In fact, you get the same results with flightiness. 
A lazy, wishful thinking. You don't need character for that kind of hope. No, no, no. The kind of hope that is produced by character resulting from endurance, resulting from suffering, is an assurance that has watched every other empty promise in this world fail in the crucible of life in the real world. It is a forged confidence that knows exactly where your hope is found because the promise-keeping God is the only one who remains standing. The hope we have in Jesus is not a blind faith. It is not wishful thinking. It is not something we daydream about. All the pieces may be falling into place one day so that we can finally get what we want. It is a confidence in the future reward of a promise kept by our promise-making God. That is the Bible's definition of hope. It's a forward-facing assurance as you stare directly at He who is trustworthy. It's also the only kind of hope that can bear the weight of real suffering. Tossing pennies in the wishing well crumples under the pressure. But as awesome as hope is, hope does not merely exist for the sake of hope. Hope produces something too. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Some of your translations may say, uh, hope does not disappoint. All right? So hope cashes in on something too, right? And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so Paul says here that the God who rightfully earns your hope is already fulfilling the first piece of that promise by giving you himself. By giving you the Holy Spirit to dwell with you and, and in you. Ephesians 1, Paul calls the Spirit our guarantee or our, our down payment, he says, for the rest of God's promises. Small down payment, right? This isn't some begrudging earnest payment. It's not like God you know, didn't have the credit to qualify for the no money down deal. It's a deluge of blessing. We say it all the time here. Follower of Jesus, you have not been saved to neutrality. You haven't. The gospel, yes, begins with sinners in the hands of a rightfully angry God. It continues on from there to one of the most astounding gifts that has ever been given. The God-man, Jesus the Christ, who lived a sinless life that we're incapable of living and died on a cross as a substitute in your place, our place. Because of his sacrifice on our behalf, we are reconciled to God, brought back together in peace with God. This is the beginning of the gospel. It is eternity-shaping news, but it is not the final step of the gospel. The gospel does not stop with justification. The reconciliation purchased by Jesus is not neutrality. We have peace with God. We have access to Him through, through faith. And on top of that, He is pleased, pleased to give us Himself. Not begrudgingly, but in abundance. First, the down payment. But then one day our promise-keeping God will fulfill all things. We will have Him in full. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. I think you think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into everything that God has revealed about himself in Romans 5. You, Christian, have 
access to the Father. What are you going to do with it? You, Christian, have peace and the assurance of playing a role in the manifestation of His glory. What are you going to do with it? Question to ponder. Do people see the glory of God when they look at your life and your obedience to His Word and your worship and your evangelism and your fill-in-the-blank? Do people see it? What needs to... What needs to be reordered this morning so that you can faithfully celebrate and boast in His holiness? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. I really am. I, I don't think, though, it's an accident that God has you here this morning. I think He would have you hear something. The fruit of justification is absolutely amazing. It's it's almost as amazing as the justification part itself, all right? But every single bit of it begins with the phrase, therefore, since we have been justified. Justification begins and ends with Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. The Bible teaches that by default, we are not at peace. That is not the current state of things if you're not a follower of Jesus yet. You're an enemy of God. But Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again for the remission of your sin and to bring you back to himself in peace. Romans 10 tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be justified. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want somebody to walk you through what that step looks like, I'm down here to talk. But you can respond to Jesus today in repentance and faith. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 5. Thank you for being the God who gives us gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. Just escaping the wrath that I'm owed sounds like a really good deal. But you have not stopped there. give us yourself. You give us every bit of you. As a sinner, I don't deserve to be near you in your presence, but you give us yourself in full. Not because you're incapable of being just, but because you are perfectly just and you took that justice yourself. You stood tall and said, I'll take it. Not because I I have anything to offer back to you. But because you are good. And you are merciful. And you are mighty to save. So God, as we sing, would you give response to your people? Whatever it is you'd have us do. Push us towards obedience. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.